before we turn to our sermon, um, you may have noticed that Brother Clay Bennett had to ta- be taken out of the service today because he was not feeling well. I'd like to take a minute to pray for Clay. And also, Miss Bobby, it's good to see you. We want to pray for you today as well. We know that your desire is to be with us, and uh, the Lord is sustaining you in your faith. And I want to take a minute to pray for you as well before we start. Father, you are good and gracious God, Lord. We are desperately, desperately dependent on your grace. Today, Father, we want to take a minute to pray for Clay, Lord, and his ailments. Father, um, he came because he wanted to hear from you, but um, he couldn't stay physically. Father, I pray that right now that as he gets help in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, that uh, he gets the physical help that he needs. Lord, I pray that you sustain Lynn as well as uh, she uh, remains next to, her hus- next to her husband during this time. Father, we pray that Clay would be able to be with us again soon. We praise you for your grace in his life. Father, it is also such a great joy to see Miss Bobby here this morning. Lord, we pray for Miss Bobby. We're thankful for her. We love her. And Lord, we pray that your sustaining grace will be on her life. And she knows that she has a church that prays for her. We're thankful, Lord, for prayer. Because, Lord, we know that you hear the prayer that is uttered in faith. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them, about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless faithless generation, how long am I to be with you, and how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I commend you. Come out of him and never enter him 
again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can be driven out by this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Back when I was in seminary, I remember often walking around with questions in my mind. This is not uncommon for seminarians. One of the reasons why you go to seminary is because you have questions and because you enjoy thinking of them. One question that lingered in my mind for a long time was the question, how much faith is saving faith? I was puzzled by the thought that some people might make it to heaven by the skin of their teeth. So how much faith is just enough faith to get a person into heaven? I ran this question by a friend of mine, and he rightly pointed out that I was asking the wrong question. The right question, the, the question is not how much faith is saving faith, but what is the nature of saving faith? A person's faith is not primarily measured by its intensity, but by its object. What does this mean? This means that the main question is not how much faith we have, but in whom our faith rests. Today we'll meet a man who was in great distress. His distress was not caused by his own ailments, but by the condition of his son. His son was possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. This man's faith was frail, he recognizes it by his statement, I believe, help me, help my unbelief. But the frailty of his faith, in his frailty, this man shows that frail faith can be powerful. Frail faith can be powerful. Jesus says, in the parallel account of this man's faith in the Gospel of Mark, for truly I say to you, if your faith, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus believes in the power of small, frail faith. We've seen much demonic activity in the Gospel of Mark. It might be important for us to think a little bit about what demons are. Demons are powerful entities, but their power amounts to nothing in comparison to the power of Christ. Demons are unembodied, evil spirits. So they roam around the earth looking for hosts, looking for bodies. 
ever since chapter 1, they have been following Jesus. It's not surprising that they would do so. Demons were created by Jesus. But they followed Satan in their rebellion. They were cast out of God's presence. So when they would see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, they would recognize him as their maker and as their Lord. The book of Jude is a short book, but it has very high Christology. It has a very high view of the theology of Christ. And here is what Jude says about Jesus' relationship with demons. Jude 5 and 6, those are verses. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, the demons, and the angels who did not stay with their own position and authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So when a demon would see Jesus, when a demon would come into con contact with Jesus in the Gospels, the demon wasn't just having a casual encounter. They were coming face to face, face with their maker. And they were coming face to face with he who was keeping them in eternal chains, just awaiting the day of judgment. Jesus has had many encounters with demons in the Gospel of Mark, just to remember a few of them. Earlier in chapter 1, he delivered a man with a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. Chapter 5, he delivered a man that was possessed by a legion of demons. In chapter 7, we met the Syrophoenician woman who pleaded with Jesus to deliver her demon-possessed daughter. And there are many more encounters with demons in the Gospel of Mark. Today, we'll meet a man in a similar situation to the Syrophoenician woman. His son was tormented by a demon from childhood. And this man did exactly what any loving father would do when they see their children suffering. This man brought his son to Jesus. This man came to Jesus bringing his brokenness, bringing him his brokenness and his weak faith. And at the end of the story, Jesus makes him whole. The story is a reminder that we don't approach Jesus when we are spiritually fit, but when we are spiritually unfit. And we trust Him to grant us the fitness we need. So today we'll consider three points from our story. We'll consider first the faithless disciples. And then we'll contrast that to the faith-filled Father. And then we'll consider briefly the mighty Savior. So let's consider first the faithless disciples. You may remember that last week Jesus went up 
to a high mountain with his disciples. There they saw him transfigured, three of them. And Jesus was along with Moses and Elijah. And the voice of God, God the Father, came from a cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. I told you last week that the transfiguration was a foretaste of the resurrection. Jesus just told his disciples that the way of the Christ was the way of the cross, and though the way of the disciples of Christ would also be the way of the cross, the way of suffering. So Jesus, in his mercy, in order to encourage his disciples, Jesus reminds them that at the end of the cross, there is a resurrection. At the end of suffering, there is joy. And at the end of the Christian life, there is glory. But the time of glory is not yet here. So Jesus literally comes down from this mountaintop experience to continue his journey of suffering. This is telling of the disciples' experience, isn't it? At times they accomplish great things. At times they behold great things. At other times they struggle greatly. This picture of mountain and valley is not here by coincidence. Mark wants the geography of Jesus' ministry to tell us of his discipleship. Peter at one point declares Jesus to be the Christ. And immediately after, he rebukes Jesus and is then rebuked by Jesus. But as Jesus comes down from the mountain, he finds a kerfuffle between the disciples and the scribes. So as he approaches, the crowd sees him and they are awestruck. Why? Because they had gathered around the disciples to see Jesus. But Jesus is not there. But when Jesus arrives, they are amazed. His fame by this time had gone far and wide. He was well known. And the crowd had a special interest in Jesus because his absence had aggravated the interaction between the scribes and the disciples. Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? And the scribes say nothing, perhaps because they don't want to engage in debate with Jesus. That has not gone well for them thus far. The disciples say nothing, perhaps because they're embarrassed. Perhaps because this debate is really not going well for them. They're not showing the power that they should be exercising. But this time the crowd speaks. The crowd speaks. The observing crowd. And someone from the crowd says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has an evil spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. 
So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And they were not able. So Jesus is coming down from the mountain with its three disciples. Nine of the disciples are here trying to cast out one demon, but they are not able to do it. Now, don't forget that back in chapter 6, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into the region of Galilee and expand the kingdom around those towns. The disciples had both the mandate and the power to work under or with the authority of Christ. They should have been able to cast out this demon. But they were not able to, Mark 6, 7. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And listen to this. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So the authority to cast out this demon rested on the disciples. So what the Father was asking the disciples to do was totally within the authority that Jesus had given them. But they were not able to. Why? Jesus tells us in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Do you feel the tone in Jesus' words? This is frustration, disappointment. Jesus has spent time with the disciples. Jesus has given the disciples authority. But they're not able to exercise that authority. Why? Because they're faithless. They lack faith. They had the authority to help, but they did not have the faith. Faith is the tool that activates the power of God, isn't it? This is what we're seeing in this passage, but the disciples are faithless. You know, it is possible to walk close to Jesus and yet have no faith. It is possible to hear the teachings of Jesus. It is possible to see the miracles of Jesus. It is possible to spend time with Jesus' people and have no faith. It is possible to claim the label of disciple of Christ and yet have no faith. It is possible to claim Christianity and yet have no faith. The faithlessness of the disciples was revealed because they had no power. They had no power to accomplish the things Jesus had called them to do. So, we can flip this statement backwards and understand how true faith is detected. True faith is revealed when we rely on the supernatural power of the Spirit to accomplish what Jesus has called us to accomplish. If the disciples were failing to accomplish right, the, the, the mission of Christ because of their faithlessness, faith will enable us to accomplish what Christ has called us to accomplish. And we'll especially see that in the supernatural nature of what Christ has called us to 
to accomplish. Friend, we may or may not be called to cast out demons or heal the, the sick like the disciples did. I, I don't think demons have vanished from this earth. I think, unlike in the first century, they disguise themselves in a different way today. But demons are at work. And some of us may be called to work in places where there is severe demon activity. We may not. But we are called by faith in the gospel to live out the calling that Jesus has put in our life. And there are things in our life that should only be explained by the fact that Jesus died and rose again. So, forgiveness is possible. Do you sometimes feel in your heart that would, it would take a supernatural activity in order for you to forgive somebody that has sinned against you? Yeah. It does sometimes take supernatural activity, doesn't it? But Jesus supplies us with that activity. In your mind, you may think, I can never forgive this person or that person. And you can. Unless you believe that Jesus died and rose again to forgive you. So go forgive others. You may think, I'll never be able to be a true Christian in my workplace. Or I'll never be able to be a true Christian in my school. And you won't. Unless you believe that Jesus died and rose again to receive you. So in Him, you are accepted. And you need the acceptance of no one else. You may think, I'll never overcome my sin. Be able to take on difficult ministry. Evangelize. Friend, if the Lord has called you, He will lead you. Do, you. do not be a faithless generation. Your life is not too small or insignificant. Jesus died for you. You are of great value for the kingdom of God. So if God has called you to accomplish the impossible, rely on the power of the Spirit and go accomplish it. So what is the Lord calling you to do today that will require great faith from you? What has the Lord called you to do that will demand that you believe in the gospel in order to accomplish it? Perhaps you've walked with the Lord for a long time, just like the disciples, but there are areas in your life that you have rendered unchangeable. You might say, Pastor Lucas, there is no hope. There are aspects in my life that simply will not change. You can't teach an old dog new, new tricks when it comes to Christianity. And I am an old dog. Friend, believe me, this is a lie. You are not an old dog. In Christ, you are a new creation. And this transcends all other aspects of your life. Have faith grow, change, mature, grow from one degree of glory to another. But in contrast to the faithless disciples, we see now the faith-filled father of this boy. He was not faithless, he was faith-filled. Weak faith, yes, but faith nonetheless. So let us consider the father. The father here is a is a model for the disciples. He, he, is a, he is a practical teaching for the disciples. 
in this story, the father is doing what the disciples are supposed to be doing. He's a model for us as well. He's a model of weak faith looking for a solid ground. The father is suffering, but not, not for his own pain. He suffers for the pain of his son. It's easy to relate to this, right? Few things in life are more genuine than the suffering of a parent for his child. Parenting begins with pain, labor pains, and it continues as a relationship that you are continually laying down your life so that your children may flourish. As a parent, even in my early years of parenting, I suffer more with my children's pain than with my own pain. When I see my children suffering, I always wish that it was rather me than them. I understand Paul's statement in Romans 9 about his fellow Israelites when he says, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I, I understand that. I understand that statement. This is not a new theme in the Gospel of Mark of a suffering parent. In chapter 5, we mentioned this, and we're going to look at Jairus again in just a little bit. A ruler of the synagogue. He fell at the feet of Jesus imploring for him to raise his daughter from the dead. Jesus tells him, do not fear, only believe. Okay. And Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. Chapter 7, we saw the Syrophoenician woman, and we mentioned earlier as well, her daughter is possessed by a demon. She cries out to Jesus for mercy. In the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. So Jesus heals her daughter. So it's not surprising that in the interaction with his agonizing father, faith will play a major role. God often uses suffering to strengthen our weak faith. Friends, if you are parenting, right, this is a reminder that at the heart of parenting, there must be faith. We must trust Jesus. We must run to Jesus. You, you know, one thing that we see here, right, that, that we see often, we often think, I need to tell my child about Jesus. But you know what we see in all three of these stories? Is that in all three of these stories of suffering parents, these parents tell Jesus about their children. And that's an aspect of intercession that we're lacking. We must tell Jesus, 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 regard my child. Whether their, their, their suffering is physical or spiritual or emotional, Jesus, I want to tell you about my child. I want you to know my child. Jesus, I want you to draw near to my child. Jesus, I want you to heal my child. This is, this is parenting 101. This is at the heart of parenting. Our children don't need us to be present in every soccer game and in every swimming activity, although that's important. Our children don't need us to provide them with endless resources. Our children need us to come before Jesus on their behalf and tell Jesus, 
Show me your mercy by showing grace to my children. That's what they need. Parenting is filled with pain from beginning to end. But God is using this pain to strengthen our weak faith. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 19. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. That's the goal of parenting. Bring, my, bring your children to Jesus. This is the heart of parenting. At the heart of Christian parenting, there is a mandate for us to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to raise our children so that they may come to Christ. So, so they did. They brought the child to Jesus. And as soon as the Spirit sees Jesus, it convulsed the boy. It threw it in the ground. The Spirit knew the one who was to judge him had arrived. So Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, why does Jesus ask this question? I mean, he is God. He knows. A few chapters earlier, we saw him knowing the thoughts and intentions in the hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus knows this information. Throughout the Bible, God asks men questions. He asked Adam in the garden, where were you? He asked Cain, where's your brother? He asked Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? He asked Moses, who has made the man's mouth? He asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He asked Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? But why does God do this? Why does God ask man questions that he knows the answer to? He's not asking these questions for his sake. He asks us questions for our sake. He asks us questions because God wants to draw out our hearts. Jesus didn't approach this man as a project. He approached this man as a person. He is deeply interested in this man's experience in suffering in life. So he asks this man, how long? How long? God doesn't want to just resolve our problems when we're suffering. He wants us to experience him at a heart level. So Jesus asked the man the question, because he wants the man to know that he is known by Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Knowing God and being known by God is why we exist. So the man answers, he's been plagued by this demon from childhood. This demon has been trying to destroy this boy's body by fire by water. It's interesting comparison here, right? Two ways that God himself has judged and will judge humanity. Water in the times of Noah by fire at the last judgment. Important for us to remember here that Satan just hates children. He wants to destroy them and he wants to destroy this boy. I think we see Satan's hatred towards children in our culture. Our culture has, has embraced abortion on demand. 
our culture that tells our children that they can be whatever they are and promotes deep harm to their bodies. Our culture that says that children are a burden rather than a blessing. Satan hates children. And, and his demonic activity is still plaguing our children today. Children, I want to speak to you directly. You know, there's an aspect of this message that may even be a little scary to you. I know that this whole conversation of demons and evil spirits can be scary. But it is in the Bible and it is important that we consider it because these evil spirits are real. But if you're at all scared by some of these stories, you know, these stories actually tell us how to protect ourselves from these evil spirits. You see, what the Father does here is he brings his sons to Jesus and Jesus protects his son from these spirits, right? So here's what we want you to understand. Yes, there's a lot of scary things in the world, but along with the scary things, God provides protection for us. So if you're hearing this story and you're thinking, I don't want Satan and demons to have anything to do with me, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Jesus and you need to tell Jesus, Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. I want you to protect me. And I want to trust in you. Would you help me believe in you? If you want to do that, can I encourage you to tell your parents that today at lunch? Just tell your parents, uh, hey, mom, hey, dad, what Pastor Lucas said today about receiving Jesus in my heart, I want to do that. Can you help me with that? And Jesus will help you. So notice how, how Jesus responds, right? Uh, I'm sorry, um, the man responds to Jesus. He says, uh, this has been ha happening since he was a child. And then he says, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. We learn a lesson here from this man's answer. The lesson is this. Never start a question to Jesus with an if you can. I mean, there's a tone of irony in, uh, irony in Jesus' response, isn't there? If you can. I mean, I created your son. I created the demon. I created all things. Oh, friend, you put the if in the wrong place. The if is not before I can. The if is if you believe. I can help your son, but do you believe I can? All things are possible, Jesus says, to the one who believes. So the man, the man hears Jesus, and he utters one of the most powerful statements of faith in the whole Bible. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, we can almost hear the breaking voice of the Father in this statement, can't we? I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, Jesus, I believe in you, but faith is hard when things are not going my way. 
Oh, Jesus, I believe in you, but I struggle sometimes. Oh, Jesus, I believe, but I need your help believing. Do you realize what the Father is saying here? At, fo- at first, it sounds like a very weak statement of faith or even almost a statement of unbelief. But this statement is not weak at all. The man is actually speaking of faith, of robust faith. He's actually making a double statement of faith. I believe in you, Jesus, and I also believe that where I struggle, you can help me believe. There are two statements of faith here. This is what the Father is saying. When the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief, He is giving over His entire faith life to Christ. He's saying, there is an aspect of me that believes in you, and there is an aspect of me that struggles to believe in you. Jesus, I want you to have both. It's all yours. And you know, sometimes we only have to do that when the Lord strips us of all other confidence that we have in the flesh. This man came to a point where faith was the only thing he could have. Sometimes the stability of this life disguises our unbelief. A well-stocked bank account, a clean bill of health, a spouse, children, friends, a job, ministry. These things may be here today and gone tomorrow. And if you have faith in these things, you will be utterly disappointed. This man teaches us that we need to come to a place of spiritual bankruptcy and give over our entire faith life to Jesus. Listen to how Paul explains this, this concept of spiritual bankruptcy and faith in Christ. Galatians 2.20, 2, 20, 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul, the paradigm that explained his life was the cross of Christ and his relationship to his cross. Paul is crucified with Christ. He has handed over his life to Christ. It is Christ who lives in him, through him, by him, and through this crucifixion now, Christ lives in Paul. So the life of Paul... The life that Paul now lives is totally lived by faith. And this is where the Father finds himself in our passage today. Christ, Jesus, faith is all I have. So I'm going to give it all to you. Jesus, I believe, but I need you to come into my life and help me with my unbelief. Friends, this is the power of the gospel in order for us to conquer the power of unbelief in our lives we need a new life we need a cross-centered life we need to be crucified with christ our life must be regarded as nothing there's nothing we bring we bring belief and a plea for help with unbelief The cross is a place of great exchange. At the cross, our sins 
are given to Christ by faith. And His righteousness is given to us by faith. And the greatest sin that dies on the cross is the sin of unbelief. This is the root of every sin. We do not take God at His word, but Jesus gives us the gift of faith. Faith does not need to be perfect in order to be genuine. Jesus helps the one who has weak faith. So friends, if you, if you have resisted the cross of Christ, if you're here among us and your life is not centered on the cross of Christ, you're trying to live by your strength, through your means, relying on what you do, today is a great day for you to stop. Today is a great day for you to say, Lord, conquer every area of my life that does not believe your gospel. Cry out to God today saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I need to take just a couple of minutes here to answer an important question. The question is, is Jesus promoting in this text a word of faith theology? I mean, he said all things are possible for the one who believes, right? Is Jesus promoting here name it and claim, claim it theology? Does, Jesus, th- does God answer every prayer according to our will if we have faith? The answer is no. No, he doesn't. The Bible as a whole has to be taken into account here, and often God answers no to the prayers of faithful men. Take Paul, for example, who pleaded with the Lord earnestly for his thorn in the side to be removed, but the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient. But if you're a careful observer, you see that my answer is concealed within my question. Does God, God does not answer our prayers according to our will. No, He answers prayers according to His will. First John 5.14, it's a passage that helps us understand the passage that we're reading today. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything, sounds like our passage for today, right? So here's an expansion. According to His will. He will hear us. Jesus willed to heal this body, uh, this boy. So when the father asks help, Jesus is saying, that is my will, so I will do it. So whenever we ask anything according to the will of God, he says, yes. We must ask according to the will of God. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a person who is strong in prayer first is a person who seeks to discern the will of God. Why? Because the strength of their prayer comes from the fact that they pray the will of God. A person who is a prayer warrior does not pray his will. They pray the will of God. And this is why their prayer is powerful. Notice what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now listen to the language of will. 
nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Was Jesus' prayer answered? Yes. The will of God was accomplished in his life. Now, did you notice that there was an if in Jesus' prayer? And I just said there should be no ifs in our prayers, right? But this if here is not referring to God's ability to deliver. This if here is referring to his will. But Jesus bows his human will to the divine will of the Father. And friends, this is what prayer should lead us to. Prayer should lead us to bowing our human will to the divine will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. And friends, this is how. Now briefly, let us consider the mighty Savior. The mighty Savior. So Jesus rebukes the spirit, the unclean spirit. He does what he does. He does what he's done all along. He shows his lordship, his authority. Jesus, in delivering the boy from this evil spirit, shows that grace is given not to the strong, but by the strong. So, we who are weak find power not within us, but within Christ. This father had a need that was greater than him, so what did he do? He ran to Christ. When Jesus healed the boy, after the demon convulsed him, one last time, this boy became Phil. In the Greek, it literally reads, this boy became as if dead. The, the word that most English translations use is the word, the boy became like a corpse. I think that's a good translation. And there are interesting parallels here between this unknown boy and Jairus' daughter in chapter 5 and it, it bears us thinking about this for a little bit both these suffering children were surrounded by crowds both of them had desperate fathers who could only find hope in Jesus this boy was alive but it was as though he was dead Jairus daughter was alive but Jesus said she's just sleeping Jesus tells the girl, arise. In the Greek, agaria. And she got up. And he's Tammy. And he lifts up the boy, agaria. And the boy arose. And he's Tammy. Same word. But why is Mark associating these two stories? Mark wants us to event mark would eventually use the same words referring to the resurrection of jesus christ mark wants his reader to know that the hope of the resurrection lives in christ he not only raises from the dead he gives the resurrection to others this is a wicked world this is a world where little children suffer and die this world is not the way God designed it to be, but Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, overcame death, pain, and suffering. He was dead, but he rose, and since he rose, you and I, who are weak, who cry out, I believe, 
help my unbelief have the hope that is in Christ. In Christ, we can have victory over death. There's a short appendix to this story here in verses 28 and 29. Jesus withdraws with his disciples. They ask him privately, why could we not cast out his demons? And Jesus answers, this kind, which may be referring to this kind of demon, or this kind, demons, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So I thought carefully about what Jesus was saying here, and I realized that he's telling the disciples, you didn't pray. You relied on your track record, on your history. Right? You relied on the things that you did back in chapter 6, and that worked. So you thought, it will continue working. I mean, I see that in my own life. I remember when I started preaching, I felt a greater burden for prayer. And I began relying eventually more on my strength. And, and this passage helped me realize that. And, and I've been praying, Lord, help me not fall prey to this. I think you may see this in your life as well in some areas. Right? But I also realize that there is a prayer in this passage. It's not from the disciples. The disciples begin this passage quiet. And they remain quiet throughout the whole passage. The prayer is from the father of the boy. He says, but if you can do, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And here's the power to drive out the spirit. It was this prayer. Jesus answered this prayer that was uttered in faith. It's a simple prayer. It's a humble prayer. But it is directed at Christ with faith. It is directed at the one who can do all things. So this weak man accomplishes that which the powerful disciples couldn't accomplish. Why? Because he believed Christ. Friends, this story is a reminder to us that victory in this world is not given to those who are strong, but to those who trust in the one who is. The question that matters today is not, are you strong in your faith? No. Here's the question that matters. Is your faith resting in Christ, who is strong? Would you pray with me? Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Lord, help us rely wholeheartedly in Christ. Help us declare spiritual bankruptcy and help us hand over the title of our life to Christ. Lord, lead us to discern your will. Lead us to a life of prayer that always bows to your purposes for our lives. Help us today, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.